and welcome to episode three of the man that rants things he what's it called again well the new format of the podcast thing anyway so after phil collins and nickelback i needed a new challenge and it's not going to be as twitter user at magic thigh suggested that i watch every single episode ever made of mrs brown's boys that would be just too much punishment for anyone to be honest Another Twitter user, at Stormleaf, probably knows what's coming though, I'm pretty sure I told him the other day exactly what I was going to do. This time, I'm listening to Metallica. But don't you like Metallica? I'm sure you've got one of the t-shirts, and you've definitely seen them live before, some of you might be saying. Well, I don't have any of the t-shirts anymore. I grew out of them all, having purchased them when I was a teenager who was much thinner than I now am. But I have seen them live three times, including once in Roundabout Enthusiast's Wet Dream Milton Keynes and Town Which Doesn't Need an Ice Rink, Whitley Bay, where I saw them at the ice rink. If memory serves, at the Whitley Bay show, James Hetfield sent the crowd into a frenzy by suggesting that the band had visited the Metro Centre earlier that day. As if. Hetfield would clearly be more of an Eldon Square kind of guy. Anyway, enough about Novocastrian shopping centres. I don't have anything against Metallica, really. Just a huge section of their output. Well, actually, maybe I do have something against them. James Hetfield is, or at least was at one point, hugely into hunting, which is something only bastards would do. I seem to remember a story about him being holed up in a place in Russia with some dubious types waiting for the right moment to shoot some bears. Although at that time he was certainly more into drinking than hunting, and he'd possibly just use it as an excuse to go on a lengthy vodka bender. And Lars Ulrich, or as Kerrang! magazine used to affectionately call him, Large Oil Rig, the tubby tub thumper, has always come across as a bit of a helmet. He reportedly nicked the name Metallica from a friend of his who was going to use it to um, as, as the name of a um, sorry I'm just going to notes here got lost yeah he reportedly nicked the name Metallica from a friend of his who was going to use it as the name of a metal fanzine and he's always running his mouth off. However, I'm not actually annoyed about him taking the stance against Napster a few years ago. It was really Metallica's thing, but it was him that was the spokesperson for it. And all those who moaned, oh, Metallica have got so much money, it's selfish of them not to allow their music to be shared for free," were the true selfish ones. Metallica, and Ulrich in particular, weren't bothered so much about protecting their own interests as they were protecting those of smaller acts. Well, that might be true, but the way they fleece fans with expensive downloadable live records, I'm not so sure. And don't even get me started on the live shit binge and purge box set that cost £75 in 1993 for three CDs and three VHS, VHS tapes in a flight case which was made of cardboard. Um. I'm not sure what Kirk Hammett's ever done to piss me off, and current bassist Rob Trujillo seems like actually quite a nice guy, to be honest. So, let's go back to the start. Kill em All was a frankly excellent debut. It's full of really fast metal songs, which were actually pretty groundbreaking in 1983. But one blot on this album, in my opinion, is the bass solo instrumental, Anesthesia Brackets Pulling Teeth. This will, of course, inflame Twitter user at Jared underscore T, who told me I was dead to him when I suggested this was the album's worst track the other day. But it is, at least in my opinion. But let's not pretend that original bassist Cliff Burton wasn't fucking fantastic. He looked like a bit like a... Well, he was he was a hippie, wasn't he? He didn't just look like one, with his flared jeans and his very straight, centre-parted hair that seemed to almost cover his face entirely at one point. He also had a bit of a supply teacher vibe. You can imagine him saying, My name's Mr Burton, but you can call me Cliff. And then he'd get fired for sharing a doobie with some sixth formers by the bike sheds. Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets are both also excellent albums which still hold up today. In fact, it was a pleasure listening to both of them while I wrote this. Except perhaps Escape from Ride the Lightning, which isn't even good enough to be a B-side when compared to their other output during the early period. And why did Hatebreed cover this song on their album of covers of songs that supposedly inspired them? Christ knows. Well, in September 1986, a bus accident um, took place. It changed, well, changed metal history, really. The band were touring in Sweden... 
Cliff Burton was tragically killed as he was thrown through the window and the bus rolled over him. Um, I think he was he was possibly asleep when it happened anyway. Um, yeah, this is one of the biggest losses in the world of world of music ever, really. There's really nothing funny to say about this. But it was also a pivotal moment for the direction of Metallica. A lot of purists still refused to accept anything that was released after this point. I'm not quite one of them, but well, I'm not far off. They recruited Jason Newkid from the, ba the band Flotsam and Jetsam. I'm sure everyone's uh, got them on their playlists. Don't bother them, not that good. Um, he was Burton's replacement. And the band released an EP of covers, which wasn't recorded in a garage that was meant to seem like it was, called Garage Days Revisited, I believe it was. Maybe it was recorded in a garage, I don't know. Anyway, it was it was okay, and it fitted well with all the Diamond Head covers that they'd been using for B-sides up, up to that point. Uh, there was a Diamond Head song on there, was there a Misfits one? Well, two Misfits ones and Andrew doesn't matter. I'm rambling. I'm going off script. The first studio album, album in a post-Cliff world followed in 1988. And Justice For All is, as far as I'm concerned, the last great Metallica album that was produced. There's some great songs on it, even though some of them are over nine minutes. They seem to have a kind of you know two-minute acoustic guitar intro with a medieval vibe, then the song, then an acoustic outro for some reason. Um... Yeah, it was it was it was acceptable. The one problem was the band's obvious disdain for New Kid. They knew he wasn't an adequate replacement for Cliff, and nobody was really at that point. But they disliked him so much that his bass was so low in the mix it might well might as well just not have been there. If you listen to it, you can't hear the bass at all. However, this album still sounds like the Metallica which had previously existed. It's possible there was still a bit of Burtonian influence left. And some of the last words he ever wrote were used in the instrumental song, which wasn't instrumental because there were words in it. Um, it was called To Live Is To Die. I think it's like four lines of text that he'd written. But then came the 90s. A new album was to be released, and I spent the entire summer, I think it was a summer between leaving school and starting sixth form college, actually, looking forward to this album. Pre-album single Enter Sandman was released. This is a single I listened to for the first time at 45. Remember Turntables? Yeah, 45. It was a 12-inch single. Any normal person would play it at 45, and I seem to remember it actually said 45 RPM on it. But it was actually meant to be played at 33 for some reason. So the first time I listened to Enter Sandman, which is their most probably their most famous song ever, it sounded like an Alvin and the Chipmunks version, which, <laughs> course, might be better. Um, but even after 50-plus listens at the correct speed, I wasn't entirely convinced by it, and I'm still not. When the album followed, and is it called The Black Album? Is it eponymous, or does it officially have no title? The rock press were divided. Many hailed it as genius, whilst many also said that the band had sold out. Two ballads on there. What? Fuck off. Well, how rude. You didn't say that about one or fade to black, you might ask, or say. Yeah, but they weren't really ballads, were they? They had quite heavy bits on them. And what about that solo in Nothing Else Matters? You might attempt to argue. It's a bit sort of heavy-ish, isn't it? Really? Even I can play it, and I was never anything more than a really shit guitarist. The album does have a few good moments. Well, one actually. Sad But True is frankly heavy as fuck, and everything was reportedly tuned down to D on it. If that means anything to anyone. Um, Metallic were probably the band that started the trend of tuning down for a more doomy heavy sound, and I'm sure I read somewhere once about Brazilian thrash god Sepultura tuning down to B flat or something ridiculous. Anyway... That's the what that was the one highlight from an album packed full of radio friendly MORness. Well, that was a long stretch without a break. Right, if you thought that was bad though, the black album, there was more to come. The band cut their hair. 
I know a lot of us did in the 90s, I was one of them, but metal bands all still had to have long flowing locks to be legitimately metal. Metallica no longer looked like Metallica, and they no longer sounded like them either, that's the problem. The two albums, Load and Reload, which I think were a year apart, were initially to be released as one double album, but the decision was made to split the material over two. It reeked of a Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion-style cash-in, but perhaps they'd gone back to their roots for these albums. Nope. They'd learned from the Black Album that there was more money in their, in their non-thrash metal um, market. In their non-thrash... Fucking hell. I'll, I'll try it again. They'd learned from the Black Album that there was money in them that are non-thrash metal hills, and they went for more of the same. Actually, it wasn't the same. It was far worse. Fuel might be the only song from these two albums that they still play live. I'm not entirely sure if that's true. And even that song's terrible. But for me, the lowlights include that thing with Marianne Faithful on it. I believe that was one that had the video that was that kind of... the standing on a swing and the room was spinning around so it looked like they were spinning around. It makes you feel a bit sick, to be honest. No sicker than the music did. And The Unforgiven 2. A song that needed a sequel in the same way that Short Circuit did. Hi, Matt, in Hong Kong. Most bands put blood, sweat and tears into their work, but Metallica put in blood and spunk. Well, at least for the album art. Yep, it's blood and semen pressed between glass, which provides the cover, cover art of both albums. Luckily, it's just photos of it, and there's no Hetfieldian jizz or any of Ulrich's population paste free with every purchase. In any case, some artists produced it for them, and the band's seed wasn't used, apparently. And then we go on to the Between Studio Albums section. After these two horrific albums, Garage Inc. appeased fans a little. It's a double album of covers. One disc is all new stuff, or was all new stuff, um, including Black Sabbath, Misfits, Thin Lizzy and Leonard Skinner songs, most of which are pretty decent, to be honest. And the other disc contained all their previous, pre- previously released covers, which are the B-side classics such as Bread Fan, Am I Evil, as well as the $5.98 EP. Did it ever cost that much? That's the one that was Garage Days Revisited, by the way. I also think it was called the $9.98 EP when it was, when it was released on CD. So I'm not sure why anyone would pay $10 for five tracks. Well, I remember buying the Garage Inc. CD... Um, at the same time as I bought a Ramones anthology and playing them both to death one summer, which was quite nice. Um, and then in 1999, there was a live album with a difference. S&M involved an orchestra. The San Francisco Philharmonic, which was led by the brother of some guy who took his jeans off in a laundrette in a 1980s Levi's advert. Metallica always used um, Ennio Morricone's Ecstasy of Gold uh, to come onto the stage. I think they still do it, actually. Um, the orchestra did an excellent version of this before the band came out. And then the instrumental Call of Cthulhu also sounded absolutely marvellous with an orchestra. But, after that, the album seems to swing wildly from genius to idiocy. Some parts gel spectacularly, while in others it sounds like the band and the orchestra are playing two entirely different songs. Some people apparently walked out during the recording of this. Um, it was, yeah, the album was recorded live uh, in front of a studio audience, like the Cosby Show. I don't know why that was the first thing I thought of. Um... And it was clear that those that walked out during the recording and filming were just regular symphony goers who went no matter what was on, and they were shocked by the inclusion of metal in their hallowed venue, which I think it was in San Francisco, I'm not sure what the venue's called. Couldn't be asked to look it up. However, I think a lot of people walked out because of the load car crashes, Hero of the Day and The Memory Remains been involved. There was no need, yeah, they should have stuck with their earlier work, really. They always should, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this album also inspired tons of other metal bands to use orchestras, so thanks for nothing, Metallica. In the early 2000s, or noughties, if you're the kind of prick that likes to call them that, uh, Jason Newkid had had enough, and he left. Um, I'm not sure what was what was said. The band went into meltdown. Um, what was needed at this point 
was a very public therapy session documented in movie format. And that's where some kind of monster comes in. Really wasn't pretty to watch. Uh, mostly because the therapist did seem to be more interested in making as much money as possible from the band rather than helping them. He's uh, a couple of points. Oh, I think you need more sessions when this, they seem to be making breakthroughs. Well, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but it did look like it was in it for the money. The band were also in the studio for quite a lengthy amount of time, something that would become their trademark in the following years. I'm surprised if any of them have houses, to be honest, to spend that much time in studios. This didn't mean they were predict- This didn't mean they were particularly productive, though. Far from it. They were, having, they were still having an identity crisis. I think that had started at the Black Album point, to be honest. So much so, um, they, haven't, they haven't been using their own iconic logo. Um, you'll, know the, you'll know the one. Um, that wasn't used after the Black Album. It wasn't used for Load or Reload, and it wasn't going to be used on the new album, Saint Anger, either. Um, I wonder if this is a clear indication from the band that they don't really see them as proper Metallica albums. I don't know. There was a lot of experimenting going on in the world of rock at the time. It was, frankly, awful. Um, Saint Anger did mark Saint Anger. Saint Anger did mark an improvement, but not a significant one. Most notably, there are no guitar solos on any of the tracks. As Nuka had left them in the lurch at the time of, I think it was right before they were going to record. A new bass player, Rob Trujillo, who was auditioned during the filming, so he had kind of did a sort of well-documented uh, audition. Um, as he joined too late, um, the, the bass parts were were played by. Um, uh, Bob Rock, who produced the album, um, he, I'm not sure he gets credited on the album, to be honest. And, it's, and anyway, it doesn't matter because the band had turned the bass down so low you couldn't hear it. Probably assuming that New Kid was still going to be recording. And yeah, another point to mention is when they they were so impressed by Trujillo that they offered him a million dollars to join the band just to prove that they were serious. And I think it was Lars that called him the most Cliff-like bassist since Cliff, which that's pretty pretty good compliment, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure whether the album itself was actually some kind of therapy for the band, but I'm certain many fans of Metallica's early work required therapy after listening to it. So with the new Cliff in tow, could Metallica get back to being good again? They enlisted Rick Rubin, who had produced artists as diverse as the Beastie Boys and Slayer to help produce their return to glory. He apparently gave them a pep talk along the lines of, imagine nobody knows who you are and you want to impress them at a Battle of the Bands type thing. What would you play? And the band started writing. They stopped to go on a escape from the studio type tour. I think they had plenty of tours called that in the years that ensued. But truth be told, they spent more time escaping from the studio than they spent in it. Everyone was hopeful that finally the true follow-up to Master of Puppets would arrive and we could just erase the last 20 years of horrendousness from our memories. Except Death Magnetic didn't quite work out like that. In fairness to the band, it wasn't really their fault. The songs were the best they'd been in many years, and I've listened to that album a few times in recent weeks, it's yeah, it's actually not bad. Great riffs were back, Hammett's solos were widdly and epic, and even Trujillo's bass was audible. First audible bass since 1986 on one of their records. Um, the problem, though, was Ulrich's drumming. I'm sure the way he was drumming was fine, but it sounded like it had been recorded over the phone. And the blame for this lies with Rubin. One of the greatest producers in the world, and he churns out this muck. It officially took 14 months to record the album, but perhaps there was no time to mix it when they were done, you know, maybe they'd, they'd gone, I, I can't understand how Metallica couldn't just push back a release if they wanted to, but it's, they'd done the equivalent of sitting up all night the night before to write an essay before they handed it in, and there was no time to proofread it, something like that. Who knows, anyway, but the production sullies what was otherwise actually a very promising return. But, <laughs> there's a problem with this as well, The Unforgiven 3... This is getting as ridiculous as masturbation-themed car chase movie franchise, The Fast and the Furious. 
the EP of leftovers from the Death Magnetic Sessions, which which followed um, later, Beyond Magnetic, it was called. Hell of a good value EP. Four tracks in twenty nine minutes. That's worth five dollars ninety eight of your money, I'm sure. Um, I'm more used to things being the other way around, and I've twenty nine tracks in four minutes. Agrophoric nosebleed, anyone? Anyway, it's bizarre because the the, uh, the same production problems were uh, were evident on this because there were three years between the releases. That's more than enough time to to mix it properly. Um, and this all happened in the days before online petitions. I'm reasonably certain that if this had happened today, someone would have gone online, started demanding that the, both of those releases were done over. Death Magnetic was quite well received despite the poor production. So what should a band do when they've rediscovered their earlier attitude and won the more hardcore fans back with what was considered their best release in two decades? Well, they should team up with, with rock dinosaur Lou Reed to make a concept album based on two plays by German playwright Frank Vedekind. Yes, really. The album Lulu contains ten songs that's almost an hour and a half long. It sounds decidedly un-Metallica-ish and it comes across as a band jamming some really bad ideas when their drunk uncle, in the shape of Lou Reed, decides to crash in and slur incoherent bullshit over the top of it. Um, the most notable one is the one where James Hetfield is screaming I am the table in the background while it goes on. It's mental. There's a 19 minute track on here for fuck's sake. No, just no. This was the last thing Lou Reed, did, Lou Reed recorded before his death and it remains unknown whether this pushed him closer to that actually happening. It wouldn't surprise you because that's the effect it had on me. The time, length of time between official studio albums has started to become longer and the last release from the band to date came in 2016. Hardwired to self-destruct was heralded as yet another return to former glories. Actually, they managed it. They finally fucking did it. 30 years after Master of Puppets. Good songs, good production. Everything was in place. I must admit, I wasn't keen on it the first time I heard it, but four or five goes later, I started to appreciate it for what it was. An actually quite decent metal album. And crucially, it doesn't contain an Unforgiven Part 4. This might well be the last ever album from Metallica. There were eight years between this and Death Magnetic. We're not going to include Lulu as an official studio release. It's Even on Wikipedia it's mentioned as a collaboration release. I'm sure that most people would rather forget that ever happened. So yeah, there were eight years between the two, the, the last two studio albums. And it's really, not, it's really difficult to see anything, a smaller gap than that occurring between Hardwired to Self-Destruct and a possible future release. Um, and nobody's getting any younger. In 10 years' time, Hetfield and Ulrich will be pushing 70, and that's frankly ridiculous. So, yeah, they've spent all these years trying to get back on track, and then that'll probably be it. Well, that was a bit different, and possibly not in a good way. Some of this was quite fun, and some of it was, well, downright torture. <coughs> Lulu. I might well return to the Collins Nickelback format next time and choose something I'm guaranteed to detest. This was kind of... I don't know, it felt like I was cheating me. So I, for part of it, I got to listen to stuff I really liked. Um, so, yeah, I've got, to, I've got to really, really dislike the stuff that I do for this. So we'll have, a, we'll have a look at getting back to that. I could very easily do the same thing as I've uh, just done with Metallica with any other metal band I had respect for in the late 80s and early 90s. But where's the fun in that? I think they pretty much all went down the tubes then, to be honest. The Mrs. Brown's Boys idea is definitely not going to happen. But if you've got any suggestions for what I should torture myself with, within reason, for next time, let me know. You can contact me on Twitter where I'm at the man that rants, or email me themanthatrantsoutlook.com. If I ever actually bother to check any of those things, I might take your suggestions into consideration. I might not either, but you won't know unless you try, will you? Anyway, that's all for now. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>